like to ask you to please turn with me to Ruth chapter 2. Ruth chapter 2, the Old Testament book of Ruth. Early on in the Bible, you will find Joshua, Judges, and then Ruth. Please turn with me to Ruth chapter 2. The book of Ruth, which we started studying last week, and we'll spend a total of four weeks in, is part love story, uh, part story of redemption and salvation, and part birth narrative of King David's ancestors during the darkest time in Israel's history. It was unknown to them, but we know from the end of Ruth chapter 4 and from the genealogy of Christ in Matthew 1, we know that Ruth and Boaz, the two main characters of this book, are in fact the great-grandparents of King David. And so this is a love story, yes, but it is also so much more. The line of David was of great importance because God had promised that it would lead to the Messiah, to the ultimate king and redeemer. Last week, we were introduced to Naomi and her Moabite daughter-in-law, Ruth. Uh, They had lost their husbands, and their lives were filled with difficulty and sorrow. And now we come to act two of this brilliant short story. Our title is The Wings of Refuge. The Wings of Refuge. And here we discover the gloriously good news that we too can find shelter and grace today in the wings of God's refuge. Come all who are needy, Come all who are lonely, come all who feel forgotten, come all who are fearful, who are dreading the holidays, come all who desire provision and protection and hope, come to the mighty wings of God's refuge that are available for us today in Christ. Ruth chapter 2 We'll begin reading in verse 1, and I'd like to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. I will read this chapter in its entirety. This is God's holy and authoritative Word. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather from among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, 
Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after that. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants." And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her and also pull out from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. May God bless the preaching of his words. You may be seated. Have you ever learned about a man that you greatly admire and desire to be like someone who is a source of inspiration for your own life? I have. Uh, for me, his name is Bandit, the father of Bluey. Uh, he's not a person, he's a dog. And I am not the only one who is a fan of the Emmy Award winning show about a six-year-old dog named Bluey. Ryan Gosling and Ava Mendez are fans. Prime Ministers and Pro Wrestlers are fans. Billy Joel, I learned, through a Bluey-themed party for his daughter. 
Bandit, the father of Bluey, is a super dad and a role model. And in the absence of strong male role models in the cartoon industry, it's a desperate need, I see. Uh, think, for example, Fred Flintstone, Homer Simpson, the father in Peppa Pig, and more. This is what we're dealing with. Uh, it comes as a great source of refreshment to have a male character who is full of love and life, who is engaged with his kids and is selfless and is hardworking, who offers wisdom, uh, who makes ordinary life look as compelling and as beautiful as it really is. We all need that kind of role model. In the time of the judges, uh, we know, and the ladies who finished their Bible study and spent time in this book know, there were not many good men in Israel. It's like one of those reality TV dating shows. I haven't watched them, but I can tell you uh, that's not where you're going to find Mr. Wright. The, the good ones were not living in the times of the judges, nor are they living on hot romance island or whatever. Um, ever since sin entered the world, uh, we have a number of problems, and one of them is that men tend to either abdicate their influence through passivity, through checking out, or to abuse their influence with violence and with dominance. And yet it is in the midst of this fallen world that now steps onto the stage a man named Boaz. This is that moment in the movie where after showing a woman in misery and distress, they cut to the guy chopping wood. He is, he's active, but pristine. He's rugged, but his clothes are ironed. He's an L.L. Bean model. He is by far the most attractive man in town, and for some reason, he is never married. Uh, I've spent a good amount of time studying the book of Ruth and studying this chapter in particular, and I'm here to tell you Boaz is an absolute stud. He is, he is a rock star of a man. He smells like strong coffee and going to see a man about a horse. He is gentle and masculine. He is full of justice and mercy. Boaz is introduced in verse 1 as a worthy man. He is a man of character, a man of strength, a man of dignity. We learn he is a powerful man, a wealthy landowner. We're also informed in verse 1 that he's a legal relative of Naomi's deceased husband, which is of great significance in the unfolding drama of the story. For anyone who knows Israelite practice and the responsibilities of family to protect and provide, that detail introduces a serious note of hope. Uh, Ruth tells Naomi that she's going to the fields to glean, and then in verse 2, she also expresses hope that there will be someone in whose sight she will find favor, the Hebrew hesed, uh, steadfast love and kindness, which is exactly what Naomi prayed that Ruth would experience in chapter 1, verse 8. The chances in those days of finding a field with a kind and gracious owner were slim to none in days of abuse and violation and violence. And so we wonder, what it, will it be like 
for Ruth to go out into these fields. It's not safe for anyone. And Ruth is doubly vulnerable because she is a foreigner and she is a widow. There's an Israelite law reflecting the justice and compassion of God that made provision for the vulnerable and the struggling. Of course, you know, again, in those days, good luck finding anyone who follows the law of God. But it was the case that the poor and the widow and the sojourner and the orphan were allowed to gather grain from the edges of the fields. God had commanded generous justice as a matter of economic law in order to curtail greed and to help those who are in need. Now, verse 3 says that Ruth, (laughs) love the way this is worded, uh, that she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Actually, could be translated by sheer luck, it just so happened that she came upon the field belonging to Boaz. It is a delightful way for the narrator to shout that the providential hand of God is plainly and gloriously at work, even in the events that we see as chance and luck. And behold, verse 4, Boaz is there. And in Boaz, the, the reason that Boaz is so glorious to us, we see in him a powerful and comforting picture of the grace that has come to us in Christ. I do love Boaz. It is mostly because he is a picture and type of my Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But also and secondarily because he is the kind of person I want to be from the moment we are introduced to him. We see him first greeting and blessing his workers. Verse 4, the Lord be with you as you glean, he says. May the favor and the presence of God be upon you. And then later we see him eating with his workers. In a lot of work environments, that's not the way things roll. In a lot of work environments, that's not the flavor. Mutual respect and trust and kindness between a boss and employees. You want to be that kind of leader. You want to be that kind of manager, whatever your sphere of influence. Be like Boaz, a God-centered person who's Faith in the Lord makes a difference, not just when we gather, but whose faith in the Lord makes a difference in your everyday life and labor and leadership. That's the kind of person we encounter in Boaz. And his treatment of Ruth is even more remarkable. He could have sent her off. He could have done worse. Instead, after noticing Ruth, he asks the supervisor about her. And then he says to her, beginning in verse 8, My daughter, words of acceptance and grace, do not go glean in another field, words of protection, because he knows that she is not at all likely to find a warm welcome in other fields. And then he says, I've charged the young men not to touch you. And later in verse 15 and 16, he says to the workers, do not reproach or insult her and Do not rebuke her. What Boaz is doing here is setting up an anti-sexual harassment policy in the workplace. He's saying, do not lay a finger on her. And this is actually quite brilliant from a standpoint of biblical justice. Because he knows that harassment can take various forms, 
of not only sexual and physical mistreatment, but emotional and verbal mistreatment. Don't insult, he says, or demean or mock her in any way, or you will answer to me. And his policy is not only one that restricts certain behavior, but also places this minority female worker on equal footing, equal access to water, verse 9, and to the table in verse 14. In that culture, you have to understand foreigners, it was foreigners who drew water for the Israelites, and it was women who drew water for men. And so commanding Ruth, the Moabite, the woman, to drink water that his men had drawn was staggering. And you can see that from Ruth's response. It is, it is radical kindness. And the meal that happens later as well is equally remarkable. Eating together had special meaning in those days. And there is profound ethnic and social barriers that are overcome in that moment. There is not only protection, there is generous provision. Boaz had his workers pull grain out of the bundles they had already collected and leave it for her so that in this one day she accumulated a serious abundance of food. Verse 17 tells us that Ruth went home with what is the equivalent of six gallons of grain that would weigh around 30 or 40 pounds. So Sinclair Ferguson says, uh, perhaps in the days of judges, women did a good deal more weight training than is normal today. You know, Ruth had been getting it. Now's when the the P90X pays off or or whatever. I don't know, but it's a remarkable picture because here is this woman with this abundance of grain thrown down in front of the one who says she's empty, Naomi. And Naomi is like, where in the world did you glean? Whoever this man is, may he be blessed. And it's then that it is discovered, verse 20, that this is Boaz, a close relative and one of the kinsmen redeemers. And then the chapter ends, verse 23, with, with a pause, with, with six or seven weeks going by. During harvest, Ruth would have likely been in contact with Boaz, but at this point, we're not sure if this is going anywhere. And so at the end of the chapter, harvest is over. Ruth is still a widow living with her mother-in-law. Now, when we come to the word of God, we realize that it is written and recorded for us today to make a difference in our lives. All scripture is breathed out by God, profitable, for reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. God's desire when we encounter his word is not just that we learn about characters back then, but that his authoritative word make a difference in our lives. God is speaking to us in his word. And what stands out in Act 2 is the radical kindness of Boaz to Ruth. Why did Boaz treat her this way. I don't think his motivation is to reward her for her own kindness that she had previously shown, though he says he was aware of that, nor is his motivation romantic. I don't think that this is, uh, you know, flirtatious generosity that he's showing, like dip your morsel in the wine, wink, wink. You know, he's not, I I don't gather that from this, this chapter. The motivation of Boaz in showing 
Hesed, in showing steadfast love and radical kindness, is in verse 12. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Follow this, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. His motive is knowing the character of God to then display the character of God in his life. His motive is to be himself, the wings of God's refuge. Do you know why that statement in verse 12 is profound? Because it reveals that Boaz saw himself as representing the wings of God. Daniel Block says, like a young chick frightened by pouring rain in distress, Ruth had come and found comfort and security under the wings of God embodied in the person of Boaz. This picture of the wings of refuge, the wings of God, is one of the most beautiful and moving images in all of Scripture. It is a picture of God's tender care for his own his tender care and love for us. It is a picture of his steadfast love and it is a picture that some of us need to see and experience afresh here today. But the stunning thing about this picture is that Boaz functions as the wings of God and from this we learn that the people of God are likewise to be the wings of God for those in need. Ruth says in verse 13 to Boaz, you have comforted me and you have spoken kindly to me. And that is how we experience the comfort and the kindness of God himself. It is through his people. And the way that others will experience the kindness and comfort and compassion and steadfast love of God is through us as we engage others and show them the kindness that we have received from the Lord. Here's a question, here's an exegetical question for you, a very specific one, but it's important for the understanding the chapter. Whose kindness is Naomi talking about in verse 20? Look at verse 20. This is where Naomi says, may he, Boaz, be blessed of the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living and the dead. So there's a kindness there. My question is, whose kindness? May Boaz be blessed of the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Well, there's two options. Is it the kindness of Boaz, or is it the kindness of the Lord? I think the whole point of this chapter is to answer that question by saying yes. Both. It's intentionally vague because the radical kindness of God is revealed and experienced in this world through the radical kindness of his people. As we become a people who embody the steadfast love of the Lord and spread it to those around us. My friend Linda Brooks texted me this week to share how God's meeting her and encouraging her through the book of Ruth. And I wanted to share part of her text with you. She said, She said, losing my one and only son, folks still ask me how I do it. With tears still flowing when I answer, I say, I don't, he does. 
He was my kinsman redeemer before Mike died and will remain so until my dying breath. My only hope and comfort is in him. Do I hurt? Do I cry? Sure do all the above. But I know God has me. And she also said, I love my church family who walks with me and carries me in their prayers and invites me into their lives and homes. The wings of God experienced through his people. The God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. This is what we have found in the Lord our God. Now what I want to do in the remaining time here is to make a few direct applications to our lives as a church family uh, from this chapter. These might feel miscellaneous, but they all come directly from the text. I want to ask, what kind of church is God calling us to be, Covenant Fellowship, in light of Ruth chapter 2? Six points, preach till noon. Um, no, I, I joke. We're not, uh, the six points is real, but we're not going till noon. Which means we'll move at a decent clip, and each one of these could be their own sermon. First, let's be a church that prays. Don't miss that there are prayers throughout this book. I want to call our attention to that fact in your own reading of the book of Ruth, and hopefully you're able to read through it this last week. If not, find time today, take 15 minutes to make that happen. In chapter one, Naomi prayed for God's blessing on Ruth. Here in chapter two, verses 11 and 12, Boaz prays that God would reward Ruth for a kindness to Naomi. In verse 20, Naomi prays for blessings on Boaz, and then the prayers continue in chapters three and four. The narrative moves along through these spoken words of blessings and prayers of the characters in the story. And every prayer in this book is answered by God. God is working behind the scenes through the prayers of his people is how he's working. And that means that we, Covenant Fellowship, must be a praying people. And it means that our prayer meetings as a church and our times of occasionally praying till noon on Sundays are way more important than any of us realize. God calls us to be a praying church. Second, let's be a church that cares for those in need. We are to be like Boaz, the wings of God for the needy, for the poor, for the marginalized, for the vulnerable. When the steadfast love of the Lord takes control of our lives, as I know it has taken control of the lives of so many of us, and I pray that if it has not yet for you, that happens today. When the steadfast love of the Lord takes control of our lives, the great evidence of that is not how we treat the wealthy and the influential and the popular but rather how we treat the marginalized and the struggling and the unnoticed. That's how you know the steadfast love of God has changed your life. Are you kind? Are you generous? 
An essential part of biblical justice is generosity that moves towards those in need. Deuteronomy 10 says he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. And then comes the command, love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. James 1.27 says religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. The kind of religion that we want is this. To visit orphans and widows in affliction. We are to show, just as so many of you are presently doing, we are to show Christ-like love to those in our lives, not just by praying, though we do, not just by writing checks, though we do, but by opening up our homes and our hearts and to be the wings of God to those who are in need. Third, let's be a church where men treat women well. Amen. Boaz is a righteous man who cares about women in crisis, and all godly men will do the same. You want to know how Christianity views women and treats women? Ruth chapter 2. It's here. It is respect. It is commitment to protect It is desire to provide. It is dying to ourselves in order to contribute to the flourishing of others. Husbands, what kind of men will you be? Will you comfort and speak kindly to your wife? Will you have the mind of Christ that looks not to your own interests, but to the interests of others? Young men, especially young men, I'm thinking junior high, high school, college included, how will you treat your sisters and your mom? That's one of the most important windows into your relationship with God. Has steadfast love taken hold of your heart? How do you treat the women who are closest to you in life? And the same goes for friends, coworkers, Every relationship that God has placed every one of us in. This is the great need of our day. And we should, part of my concern in drifting in our complementarian convictions is you won't have men like Boaz and you won't even be aiming for it. You no longer know what biblical manhood looks like. We, We should all with one heart and voice pray that God raises up a generation of men in covenant fellowship, who are faithful and godly and just and kind, who are spiritual leaders in the home and in the church for the glory of God. Let's be a church where men treat women well. I wonder if there are some men who, upon reading Ruth 2, ought to be convicted by the Holy Spirit for your treatment of those God has placed in your life. If so, repent and find forgiveness and grace and repentance and change in Christ. Fourth, let's be a church that welcomes all ethnicities. By telling the story of a Moabite, an ethnic minority and an ethnic outsider finding refuge, finding healing, finding steadfast love, 
the book of Ruth is addressing one of the most relevant and pressing biblical issues of our day, which is ethnic diversity and harmony among the people of God. Boaz and Ruth will enter a beautiful interracial marriage. It's interesting, it could be that Boaz's lack of ethnic discrimination, his lack of ethnic hostility is influenced by the fact that according to Matthew 1 verse 5, Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, was in the family line of Boaz. He would have had that as a, as a reference point. Here's, here's what I want to say from the authority of God's word. The Bible has a lot to say about ethnicity and ethnic harmony, and I am begging you to please not dismiss the biblical teaching as CRT or wokeness or any of that. We need to be able to hear and apply the biblical teaching. D.A. Carson says that in our day, as throughout history, racism is disturbingly rampant and that racism surfaces all over the world. This has been the case ever since the fall, but praise God that we have a gospel that transcends racial barriers we have a gospel that promotes unity and love across ethnic lines. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ and we are united in him. Boaz foreshadows Christ and Naomi and Ruth foreshadow the ethnic unity of Jews and Gentiles in the church of Jesus Christ. Let's continue to be a church that eagerly and joyfully welcomes all ethnicities for the glory of God. Fifth, let's be a church that connects faith and work. I told you each one of these could be their own sermon. You have no idea the amount of restraint I'm <laughs> applying and flying through these. Let's be a church that connects faith and work. I absolutely love this picture of Ruth taking initiative, working tirelessly, beating out grains from the barley, that's the kind of worker that we should be. That's the kind of worker that God's calling you to be, whether it is paid work or not, whether it is as an employee or a student or a homemaker, whatever barley you're beating grains out of, we should be the kind of workers that people notice for our diligence our faithfulness, and our kindness. And if God has put you in a position of influence like Boaz, then use it to create a positive culture and environment. Every one of us can use our own influence, regardless of our position, to create a positive culture and environment. The workplace should be where we as Christians are committed to serving the Lord, and to showing respect for fellow workers. In our work, we must guard against greed, and in our work, we must, inspired by the example of Ruth, guard against sloth, guard against laziness. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and laziness will wreck your life. And so receive the caution of God's word today. God, God created us to work. Do you want to be a productive member of your 
household and of society, regardless of your age, regardless of your station in life? Do you want to honor the Lord? Do you want to benefit others? Do you want to shape the world for good? Then work diligently for the glory of God. This is such a burden for us as pastors. Early in the new year, we plan to have a series that equips all of us with a biblical understanding of work and helps us to honor the Lord in our work. And then sixth and last point, let's be a church that takes refuge in God. And if there's one thing that I could say this morning from this chapter, it would be this, because everything else that we are as a church will flow from this great reality of being a people who take refuge in the Lord. The God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. I know that many of you are in need of that refuge today. You are in need of rest. You are in need of refreshment. You are in need of provision and protection. The fact of the matter is that all of humanity is like young and helpless baby birds. All of us needing the protection, needing the provision of the mother bird, needing refuge, needing security. And this is the great image that God presents to us, the great reality that he is our shelter, that his wings of refuge are available for us just as they were for his people of old. This is the imagery that God uses to describe his relationship to his people. When God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt, he said, Exodus 19, 4 and 5, I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself and you shall be my treasured possession. Every one of us has a story of deliverance. Lenny Spitali shared his earlier. And he can say the same, that God bore him on eagle's wings and brought him to himself. And every one of us has that experience and that reality. Deuteronomy 32, 11 and 12, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone has guided you. The wings of refuge. We as the redeemed have come to know the wings of God's refuge. And the reality is God not only worked this way in the past, but hundreds of years later then came into the world the true and better Boaz. One full of gentleness. One full of justice. One full of courage. One full of protection. There is one who has sought the outcast. There is one who has welcomed us. There is one who has showered us with kindness, one who has given us refuge, one who has brought us to his table. We who were once far off, we who were once enemies, have been brought near to his table. He came to rescue us from our plight. He came to rescue us from sin and death. Jesus came, and when he walked this earth, he wept with compassion, tears from his eyes over the brokenness of those who are lost. And he said in Matthew 23, 37, that he longs to gather, what other religious leader talks this way? No one. He says he longs to gather humanity as a hen gathers a brood under her wings. And then that glorious day would come 
when our great and glorious Redeemer would spread his arms wide in death and was nailed to a cross of wood, that we who are sinners who deserve the judgment of God for our many sins might experience refuge from the wrath of God. That we might experience eternal salvation. That we might experience there under the cross of Christ salvation from what our sins deserve. And that we might experience there at Calvary shelter from every storm. Come to the wings of God for refuge. Come to the wings of God. Under these wings you will find safety and deliverance. Psalm 17. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. You need safety and deliverance? Come to the wings of God's refuge. Under these wings, you will find refreshment and joy once again. God is in the business of restoring joy. Psalm 36, how precious is your hesed, your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. Under these wings you will find peace. You will find calm. That which seems so elusive in this frail and fragile and broken world. Psalm 57. In you, the Lord, my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. In these wings you will find hope and help in time of need. Psalm 63, I remember you upon my bed. Is anyone sleepless? I meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. In the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. Here's what we want to say, what needs to be said from Ruth chapter 2. There is no place in the world like God's mighty wings of refuge. What grace, what provision, what protection we have experienced in Christ. And it is no wonder that Ruth falls on her face, bowing to the ground in verse 10 with a heart full of gratitude and wonder. And oh, how much more should we too fall to the ground with tears of joy, in humble astonishment at the radical kindness of our God to us. And we ought to declare with adoration and praise, in the Lord I have found steadfast love. In the Lord I have found provision and protection. In the Lord I have found wings of refuge in the midst of this weary world. And I will dwell there. I will take Refuge there, I will trust in the Lord now and all the days of my life. Covenant Fellowship, we take refuge in the wings of Christ our Savior. Amen.